back. I love that Carter says that, and I see why he says that anytime that you do announcements and giving and then have to do the preaching. It's just, it's just fun. Well, it's great to be here with all of you people tonight, and I just want to extend a warm welcome and hello to everyone who is joining us online. I realized just now that I didn't have the opportunity, no, sorry, I did have the opportunity, I just didn't introduce myself to you. My name is Johnny Contini, and I serve as the campus pastor here at Crossbridge Brickle. And if you have your Bibles with you tonight, would you do me a favor and just open them up to the book of James? Uh, we're going to be in James. It's in the New Testament, kind of towards the middle end of the New Testament. And we're going to be in chapter 1 and camping out in verse 19. Now, if you forgot to bring your Bible, don't worry. We got you covered. I made sure to put the verses right on the screen behind me. But while you're turning to the book of James, I'd like to give you an update on our lead pastor, Pastor Carter. As you can see, he is not here tonight. He and his family are traveling to the country of Spain for the next couple of weeks. And while he is away, he has entrusted the care and the stewardship of the church to me. Now, this is a big deal because some of you may remember that the last time he did this, I tried to stage a hostile takeover of the church and self-proclaimed myself as the new lead pastor. I don't know. It's just a lot of energy or power got to my head, and we had to go through an arduous reconciliation process. But through repentance and grace, we have agreed to keep to our original positions, and uh, I'm just going to remain in my lane. So that <laughs> that is where we are this evening. Um, all jokes aside, I'm actually, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the chance to stand before you tonight and preach. Tonight, we are in uh, episode nine of our sermon series entitled Woven Stories. And if you're new to Crossbridge, we've been using this series to explore the power and the impact that storytelling has on our lives. Everyone loves a good story. And what's fascinating about stories is that they've been used for thousands of years, and they've primarily been used to pass down information from one generation to the next. I know everyone here loves a good story, and what makes a good story is one that piques your curiosity. It engages your emotions, and it inspires your imagination. In fact, I think Jesus knew this about us so well that if you study his teachings, what you'll find is that most of them are done in the format of a parable. And a parable is just a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Like I said, everyone loves a good story, and everyone in this room has a story of their own. But it's important to remember that your story doesn't just belong to you, that your story is part of a grander narrative that God is writing, and we've been examining how our stories intersect with those of others and how God is weaving together our relationships with friends, family members, neighbors, and coworkers into this beautiful, intricate tapestry. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the theme of communication as it relates to storytelling because newsflash, everyone in this room is a storyteller because everyone in this room communicates. Now, if you would, uh, would you raise your hand if you believe the following statement? Words have power. Raise your hand. Keep them up. Keep them up. Well, for those of you who raised your hand, you'd be correct. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 tells us that the power of life and death is in the tongue. 
Now, if this verse is accurate, and I firmly believe that it is, then it should give us a great sense of urgency to pay attention to what we are saying. Because what this verse is communicating is that nothing we ever say is ever neutral. Nothing we say is ever neutral. Everything you do, everything you say, all of the words that come out of your mouth are either moving in the direction of life or they're moving in the direction of death. Let that sink in. Because that should give us all great reason to pause and consider whether our words are building one another up or tearing one another down. In fact, if you study history, what you'll find is that mankind's greatest achievements, as well as our lowest, most depraved moments, are all marked by one thing in common. Rhetoric. How was Hitler able to rise to power and establish the movement of the Nazi party? He did it by using rhetoric. He used language to incite fury, patriotic duty, love, zeal, and hate among the masses. On the other hand, on August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and delivered his I Have a Dream speech. He used language to craft and paint a beautiful picture of racial harmony to over 250,000 civil rights supporters. And his use of language influenced the federal government to take more direct actions to realize racial equality more fully. The universal truth that words have power can be seen at the center of every major movement throughout history. And at its epicenter, there is always a skilled communicator who sets its tone and language and inspires people to do things that they never thought to be possible. Words have power. And it's essential for us to realize the words that we are saying because what they are doing is they are shaping our reality, a reality that's meant for the better or the worse. So what are we to do then with this gift from God? Because it is a gift. What, what do words reveal about the condition of our hearts and how does Christ and the gospel redeem the broken areas of our speech? Well, the book of James has a lot of insight on how we can answer these questions. But before we get into tonight's passage, I'd love to tell you a little bit about who James is. James, get this, is the half-brother of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I find it just extraordinary that Jesus wasn't an only child. But do you know how annoying it must have been for James to have your brother be the son of God? I mean, like, he is hands down favorite child. Like, he's perfect. Mom and dad love him best. There's no debating it. It must have been just so annoying to have to grow up with that in the room right next to you. What's interesting to note, though, is that James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was during his years of ministry. And this shouldn't surprise us that much. I mean, it's not uncommon for siblings to have differing opinions from one another, especially if you're claiming to be God in the flesh. But despite his initial doubts, something happened where James was able to go all in and believe that his brother, Jesus, was the Son of God. The resurrection. I mean, it's hard to deny that your brother is deity after he's been dead for three days and then raises himself back to life. In fact, James would go on to risk 
everything for the sake of the gospel to the point where he was a martyr for his faith. In fact, not long after he pens this letter to the church, a mob outside of Jerusalem grabs hold of him and forces him up to the top of the temple. They throw him off the temple mount. He lands but does not die. Church tradition would tell us that a man picks up a stick and bashes in his skull. All the while, he refused to recant. In fact, James would even uh, say that he was praying for the mob that seized him until the man finally bashed his head open. This is who wrote James. And James has a lot of wisdom on how we are to control our tongues. If you would, look with me at James chapter 1, verse 19. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And doesn't this verse just kick you right in the gut? I mean, especially if you're married in the room. How many of you wish that you were quicker to listen, slower to speak, and slower to become angry? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you wish the same for your spouse. Don't answer that question. (laughs) Oh, you know, I could actually end tonight's sermon just by reading that verse. I mean, it's clear. It's wise, it's really practical in its application. But what I find to be perplexing about this verse is that it seems like it's easier for us to do this with other people than it is to the people we are closest to. Right? It's easier for us to practice patience and participate in active listening and being more mindful with the words we say to strangers than it is to, let's say, our family members or our spouse or our best friends. Why is that? Well, in her book, You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy, which, by the way, ladies, we're going to be selling this book after service that you can buy for your father or for your husband for Father's Day. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Um, What she did was she did two years of intensive research on the art of listening. And what she discovered was something incredibly ironic about interpersonal communication. What she discovered was that the closer you become to someone, the less likely you are to listen to them carefully. The closer you become, the less likely you are to listen. She calls this the closeness communication bias. And what she says is that this bias, if worked enough over time, can strain, weaken, and even end the best of relationships. What her research revealed is that as you start to get to know someone to the point of getting close to them, that there's an unconscious tendency for you to start to tune the other person out because you think you know what the other person's going to say. In fact, in social experiments where subjects were paired with their spouse or their friend and asked to interpret the other's words and then asked to do the same with strangers, Despite the subjects thinking that they would have an easier time understanding their spouse or their friend, what the results revealed was that they were no better at doing it than the stranger, and oftentimes even worse. Nicholas Epley, who is a professor of human behavioral science at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, wrote, to accurately understand someone requires you to have a second thought 
to check if you truly know what the other person meant. But the reality is we tend to forget this because of those we are close to. We, we just assume that we already know what the other person means. A good example of this happening happened on May 14th, 2022. I remember this day vividly because it was a few days before my wife's birthday and uh, she, it just so happened she and I were traveling on different work trips the day of her birthday. I was going to New Orleans and she was going to Portugal. And in full transparency, I was the absolute worst because I forgot to plan something for her birthday. And I needed to think of something quick to try to uh, make her feel loved and special. And so while we were talking about, you know, what we were going to do for the day, I, I listened and I heard that she would love to spend some intentional time with me, but that she also needed to run a few errands in order to leave for her trip. And so me being the genius that I am, I thought to myself, she loves shopping and she wants to spend time together and she needs to run errands. I can kill three birds with one stone, take her to the mall, and in addition to that, tell her she can buy anything she wants because she's worth it. And she's going to think, man, my boyfriend is thoughtful, intentional, and efficient. I can't wait to see what he comes up with next year. Uh, let's just say my expectations didn't align with reality and the conversations that would follow in the coming days weren't necessarily my favorite. <laughs> you see, what, um, what I failed to do was I failed to really listen because when she had that conversation with me, she was doing it during a time where she was absolutely stressed. And the items that she needed to shop for weren't necessarily items that she enjoyed shopping for. And what she was really wanting was intentional, non-stressful time with me and not have work looming over her head or feel like we had to get errands done just because we were able to be efficient. This is what it means to truly listen. So don't be like me. Plan your wife's birthday. Um, if we want to embrace the idea of being quick to listen, we need to stop assuming that we know what the other person thinks or feels. It's all about practicing patience and recognizing that every person, regardless of their circumstance, deserves to be heard. But you know what? James doesn't just stop at being quick to listen. He actually takes it a step further and says that we are to be slow to speak. Now, I realize this might be more of a challenge for some of us in the room tonight because maybe you're, you have a quick wit. And because you have a quick wit, you might think that demands for a quick mouth. Or maybe you're just the type of person who gets really excited and you feel like your mouth moves faster than your brain can keep up. Or maybe you're just a person who likes to blurt things out and you justify it by saying, I'm just being direct. The reality is, is that your lack of control over your words says more about you than you even realize. Being slow to speak means being mindful and considerate about the words we choose. 
It's about thinking before we respond. Now listen carefully. What James is not saying is that if we can just learn how to control our tongues, all of our problems will just magically disappear. Rather, he's saying that the taming of the tongue takes you to the core of exactly who you are, our hearts. Jesus said it perfectly in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. But for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Basically, what Jesus is getting at is that our words have power because they reveal what's really going on in our hearts. And what's really going on in our hearts are the identities that we are clinging to. This can be really dangerous if the basis of your identity is anything other than being a son or a daughter of Christ. And here's why. Suppose you were to build your identity on the fact that you are the best person at your job or you're the best person in, in, your, in your school, or you're the smartest, you're the most successful, you're the most creative person that you know. If this is what your identity is predicated on, your mouth will be forced to tear down others because your identity is at stake. In that case, what we should do is root ourselves in the identity of the gospel because if you don't, you will force yourself to rob others of truly celebrating with them. You will be forced to highlight people's flaws and, and really harp on them because to do so reminds people of why you are superior to them. Words. Words are powerful. They're not just vibrations in the air that have meaning attached to them. They're reflections of what we truly think and feel about others. It's like our words are saying, this is how I see you and this is what I believe about you. But if your identity is rooted in the gospel, man, you're free to celebrate then. You actually get to rejoice and celebrate in the gifts of others. You, you get to be marked by edifying and encouraging others because you can't be threatened because your identity is secure in Christ. You're going to put people around you who are better than you and are no threat to you at all. And in turn, that is going to make you better. You're going to get to rejoice in the gifts and abilities of others, not seeing them as a threat. But hear me, if your identity is not rooted in Christ, not growing in an understanding of his grace, his forgiveness, his love for you made available in Christ, then you will have no choice but to point out the weaknesses of others as it relates to your identity. Why? Because you can't be dethroned. Because if you're dethroned as the greatest financial advisor ever, or the best lawyer, or the best doctor, or you're the best teacher, or you're the best mom, the best dad, you're the most creative person, well, to be dethroned means that you'll be robbed of your identity. And if you're robbed of your identity, you're lost. And believe me, it's real easy to get angry when you're lost. So what are we to do then? How are we to confront this area of our lives and allow the gospel to redeem it? Well, the answer is pretty simple, but it's not easy. It's to root ourselves in a spirit of love. 
root yourself in a spirit of love. And, and I know how that sounds. I know that can kind of sound trite or like a platitude. And some of you might be thinking like, oh, okay, Johnny, but like, what, just be kind to other people? No, I mean the biblical definition of love. That love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy. Doesn't boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. Love never fails. To root yourself in a spirit of love means that you get to expand your capacity to practice patience. And when you expand your capacity to be patient, it gives you permission to allow the other person to go first. It enables us to be quick to listen by allowing us to seek understanding before feeling the need to be understood. It empowers us to show kindness by being mindful of our words. We grow in a capacity to speak truth and love, and we don't feel the need to be envious of others by boasting about our resume or looking down on others with arrogance. In fact, when you're rooted in a spirit of love, you don't demand your own way because your words can win people over. And even when people ignore what you have to say or do the opposite of what you have to say, you won't get easily angered because you know where your identity lies. Now, this might upset some others, but you don't have to stoop down to their level. It's because you know the truth. And the truth is that a spirit of love empowers you to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope in all things, and endure all things. And if you're rooted in a spirit of love, well, friends, you can't fail. Being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry isn't just a prescription for how we are to live our life. It's also a description of who Jesus is and who he calls us to be in him. Why? Because Jesus was and is our perfect example of communication. All throughout scripture, we see Jesus modeling this communication practice. And any time he is in a conversation with someone, he always seems to go first in listening. Even with his enemies, Jesus allows them to be heard before he speaks. And when he speaks, he's mindful and considerate about the words that he says. He uses authority and truth to renew the heart and transform the mind. And never do we see an example of him getting easily angered with people just because of something they said. Even when one of his friends betrays him, he looks on him with love and calls him friend. Friends, this is the Jesus who wants to be in relationship with you. Even though we are predictable and have the capacity to create close communication bias, Jesus never does. He doesn't assume interrupt or deflect, but rather he looks at the condition of our hearts and brings healing and renewal to them. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. You see, our words can uncover the condition of our hearts. They don't, we don't have to wonder if we're harboring anger or jealousy deep down because our words lay it all bare. It's both a humbling and a gracious gift from God. 
Our words expose the truth about who we are, giving the opportunity to seek his transformation and renewal. You see that cross above me? That's Jesus outing you. (laughs) Every single person in this room at some point or another has used their words to hurt someone. And friends, that, that's a sin. That is our imperfection being full on display. But I'm just grateful that our imperfection was met with his perfection full on display. And if you've hurt people through your words, it's okay because Jesus knew. He knew that when he died for you. He, he bought you knowing the car facts. So let's remember the power of our words. Let us strive to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Let, let us be mindful of our, the, the impact our words can have on others. And, and as we journey together, let us allow the gospel to shape and transform our hearts so that our words might reflect the beauty, the truth, and the grace of our Lord and Savior.